This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, this was a rough Monday for a lot of people. <laughs> a big story. At AT&T, I guess, getting a letter, an email, a little contact, uh, because Elliott Management saying, hey, AT&T, we, your transformation has uh, gone too far uh, and maybe not far enough for them. So uh, let's get into it with our Bloomberg Opinion deals. Telecom and media columnist Tara LaChapelle and Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst John Butler. Uh, they've been tracking the story today, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Tara, let's start with you. So the news, what's the problem? What does it? What, what is it that Elliott Management doesn't like specifically? So Elliott has caught on to the fact that AT&T is a bit of a mess right now. Um, so they own DirecTV, which is sort of a shrinking satellite TV business. They have a bunch of different TV services and different streaming apps. It's a very uh, confusing strategy. And they bought Time Warner last year, of course, um, a deal that took a really long time to get done. And while Time Warner has some great assets, HBO, we probably all watched the show Succession last night, um, you know, AT&T is really unfamiliar with this Hollywood business, and it shows so far, you you know, the news reports coming out about how this integration is going. It, it is, again, you know, a bit of a mess. And I think Elliot wants to see them a little bit more focused and a clearer strategy from them, which we haven't seen yet. I do love the show Succession. It is so, <laughs> so good. It's sort of like it's like a level up from billions, in my opinion. Like there's just so much to dig into. We could talk, talk about that offline. John Butler, come on in here because, you know, Elliot is saying they have a they see a, quote, value creation opportunity. When you hear words like that from an activist, you've got to think, oh, boy, like they're coming after it. What are they? Like, what what should AT&T be thinking about from your estimation? So they didn't, Elliot didn't list anything in my mind that AT&T isn't already yeah. thinking about. So they were talking about uh, divesting of the wireline business. Well, look at the pure play wireline players like CenturyLink or Frontier. It's a terrible business right now, and there's probably no buyers. Um, they proposed uh, spinning out the satellite business, which is not a great business either. That's stuck in secular decline. But AT&T has yet to sort of realize some of the synergies there. And I have a feeling they're using some of the free cash flow from the satellite business to pay the dividend and help pay down debt. So I'm not sure they can do that yet. So to me, the Elliott thing was in response to how the stock has underperformed over the years. Uh, They're smart guys. I'm sure they did a deep analysis on AT&T and saw some low-hanging fruit some of which they put in a letter to sort of get the stock probably propped up again. But again, my feeling was, God, you know, it's early innings here. I mean, integrations of this size take years, not months. And we're in 
We're in the early stage. Um, there have been some setbacks, as Tara said. but um, Well, having said that then, I do wonder about an activist can bring about some great change that's maybe long overdue. But in this case, according to you, John, and Tara, why don't you come back in on this? I do wonder if they're going to push AT&T to make a strategic mistake because they're under the gun and they're in the spotlight right now and that they just need a little bit more time to integrate it all. That's always the risk that act- activist shareholders could be short-sighted. And a lot of the things they say are usually pretty obvious, things that the management team are probably already looking at. But I think what this tells us by them speaking up, it puts more attention on AT&T and more pressure on them to act more quickly. They are paying down debt. They are very committed to the dividend, which is very important as part of the investment thesis for AT&T shares. However, I think people are getting a little bit frustrated with them making it clear what this strategy is. Why does AT&T need to be this conglomerate? They do. I mean, is this problematic? Can they manage it, John? Well, you know... I think they can. One thing that Tara alluded to, and I can attest to this having worked at HBO, is those cultures are very different. And the the highest execution risk here, in my view, is taking a whether or not AT&T takes a hands-off approach with the entertainment business. It's a much higher variable cost business than telecom, and so the budgeting is different. The thinking about money is all different. So from the get-go, I've been like, yeah, it's an adjacent market, but it's a different business mm-hmm. model. Can AT&T kind of roll with that? And I'm not sure they can. All right, John, a little bit of a curveball for you here, but in the minute or so we have left, give us a preview for tomorrow. We're going to hear from Apple. I know you and I have been talking about what we want to see from a watch perspective. What do you? What's the sense you get as the drumbeat gets louder that we're going to see tomorrow? So I think the focus is going to be on the new iPhones and the new iPhone camera in particular. And when you think about what we're doing with smartphones these days, it all revolves around the camera. They're like digital cameras with phone capability, you know, with Instagram, FaceTime, Snapchat. So I think they're doing the right thing. I hope there's excitement around the tri-lens cameras in particular on the 11 Pro and 11 Pro Max. I think those are the new names. Yeah. We'll see. And Jason, you and I are hoping for a Watch Series 5. Yes. And that has been a great product for them. So I think if they updated it, which I don't think they will, but that could be a surprise. If yeah. they did, I think that would be a good development. And Tim Cook, it feels like he's been investing a lot in that part of the business. All right. He has. John Butler, thank you so much. Our BI analyst on telecom services and equipment. And Tara LaChapelle deals telecom and media columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Here comes a robot with electric brains. So by one estimate, the global surgical robot market is expected to grow at around 11% over the next five years annually, with a forecast of more than $10 billion by 2024. Let's... That's kind of bananas. I, <laughs> I mean, that's really fast growth. I mean, yeah. accelerating really quickly. Yeah, Go if on. you think about kind of Sorry. overall growth. Just marveling. <laughs> I love when you marvel. Uh, let's get into it and find out exactly what's going on in this area. Robert Cohen is with us, Vice President of Research and Development, Chief Technology Officer at the medical device maker Stryker in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. They are based in New Jersey. Nice to have you here with us. Well, thank you for having me. I got to say, the conversation we were having before we got going was a lot of fun. Um, tell us a little bit about what's going on when it comes to robotic surgery, where we are, the kind 
kind of growth. And you were saying that it makes a difference in terms of patient recovery. Yeah, if you think of the technology and you think how technology has benefited healthcare in a specific orthopedics where you talk about joint replacement, um, artificial hips, artificial knees, we are now living in a day of individualized medicine. A patient's expectation is higher than ever before that they could return to normal activity faster, sooner, and better. So to actually put an implant in to get that personalized level of medicine, we need an accuracy and precision that we never had before. Let's take your total knee for an example. Your total knee is a very complex structure. The way you bend, the way you get out of a chair, the way you may get off off a floor, the way you walk upstairs. That specific location of that total knee replacement implant relative to your needs and your anatomy now we have instruments that can plan better and help execute that plan better with the surgeon. And so how does it work? What does it do more precisely? And maybe that is exactly it. It's the precision that a human being just can't do. Well, we're also providing the surgeon more information on that patient. So preoperatively, a patient will get a CT scan and a three-dimensional model of that person's anatomy will be created. From that model, preoperatively, the surgeon will help locate the implant relative to the structure of that patient's anatomy. That plan is then taken intraoperatively. Now the surgeon can assess that patient's flexing of their leg back and forth, and that surgeon can modify that plan with more information than they ever had before on that patient. And only then the plan is locked into place and robotic-assisted surgery, with the surgeon still holding the cutting instrument, the robot guides the surgeon right. to execute that plan exactly with precision and accuracy that we never had before. That's what I wanted to ask you because I think Robert, there's some visions of, oh my God, it's you know the physician isn't in the you know surgical room anymore; it's all done by robots. But it's really kind of working hand in hand, correct? Oh, correct. You should just look at the ro- the robot as another essentially a power instrument that's in the operating room to assist the surgeon. The surgeon is still doing the plan. The surgeon is still assessing that patient's needs. The surgeons now is afforded the opportunity to assess that knee motion in the operating room Mm. before a plan is confirmed and finalize the location of the implant. And then I said, locking that. And now the robot executes that plan with the surgeon driving the power instruments. Because part of this is about protecting the parts of the knee that essentially don't need to be fixed or you certainly don't want to mess with, right? We're talking about the soft tissue and, and other elements that, that can essentially get damaged just in the course of the surgery. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. In fact, when you look at a patient's mobility, it's not just bone, isn't it? It's the collateral ligaments, right? Posterior crochet ligament, lots of different soft tissue structures. So with this robot at Stryker, the Mako robot, this is a very unique robot. This robot, we write the software, we design the robot, we build the robot. This is a robot that nobody else has. And because of the way we program it, we could limit the migration of the cutting tools right. to assure there is no disruption and trauma to the soft tissue so a patient feels better sooner. Right. Who has access to this? I mean, how many hospitals are using um, surgical robots here like yours? So as an example, right now we have 600 robots placed around the world. We cleared 87,000 MAKO procedures in 2018 
and we are placing robots at a, at a very good rate. The adoption of this technology now with 129 peer review articles that are out there, some of the surgeons are early adopters. Some other surgeons wait for that clinical evidence. Right. The substantial amount of clinical evidence is overwhelming. Shorter times in the hospital. What does it, so I'm assuming in terms of the cost equation... Well, it's, it's, okay. it's a capital equipment purchase that hospitals do, just like a hospital buys a CT or right. MR. But it's the same implants right. that right. we provided on the shelf before that we have clinical experience. The story here is about putting that implant where that specific patient needs that implant. Well, and as we alluded to uh, before you came on air, obviously, Stryker uh, is resonating with a lot of people, including investors, the stock up about 39% mm-hmm. this year. So far outpacing, I think you mentioned this, Carol, earlier, far outpacing the S&P and others. Yeah, easily. And it really does play into, we constantly talk about kind of uh, the medical world becoming much more individualized and personalized. So this certainly plays into it. Robert, thank you so much. Robert Cohen, Vice President of Research and Development, Chief Technology Officer at Stryker, based in New Jersey in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. You had to be a big shot, didn't you? All your friends were so All right, so we have a discussion and a book that are incredibly timely. Back with us, Andy Brown. He is editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. He joins us right around this time every Monday, and it's always newsy, and today is no exception. What is an exception today is we have a very cool book to talk about. The book is by Rebecca Fannin. She's the author of Tech Titans of China. Both she and Andy here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Welcome to you both. Rebecca, I I want to start with you. Congrats on the book. Uh, Not your first, but certainly one that is so on the news. Why now for this piece? Absolutely, because... China has progressed so far and so fast that the story had to be told. And my first book, Silicon Dragon, was published in 2008. And this is not really an update of Silicon Dragon at all. It's a totally different universe coming out of China tech today. And all these newcomers, not just the Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, but a whole new group and many new fields that really matter. Well, talk to us about, we talk so much about the globalization of the world and kind of the back and forth between countries, particularly also uh, the U.S. and China. Talk to us about the flows back and forth between technology companies, investment money, Silicon Valley. What have we seen? Well, they've been intertwined for many years now. There's been a lot of cross-border cooperation and collaboration, but now what we're starting to see is a split. Right. Because of this tech cold war, and the capital is not flowing into China, in from China to Silicon Valley, the flow is really stopped now. And we're seeing venture funds that are uh, restructuring to do just U.S. or just China. We're seeing startups that can't raise new capital in Silicon Valley from China that used to rely on that. We see startups more reluctant to get capital from China. So that's just the venture capital part of the whole technology innovation and R&D is a whole other aspect of it. Well, and Andy, come on in here because this is an idea that we've been talking about quite a bit that not only is this happening, but this has incredible implications in the short term and in the long term. This is a radical change. Sure, a radical change with, with real dangers, risks for the U.S. economy. And we've talked about the auto industry where the Chinese car industry is bigger than the U.S., Germany, France, Japan combined. And if, you know, in new energy space, if in autonomous driving space, U.S. technology is not going to be allowed to be exported, you're looking really at the marginalization of the U.S. auto industry. 
Well, and what's interesting too, Andy, you've talked about, if we talk about, I think we've talked about this in the magazine, if you think about standards being set when you've got such a huge market um, like China, Rebecca, I mean, they could ultimately be setting the standards for future tech, or or already are. We think about 5G, we think about EVs and all this stuff. Yeah, no, we're starting to see this split in standards, and we are starting to see China leap ahead in many other sectors, such as the electric vehicles uh, sector. China is the leader in drones, and uh, I think that we're only at the beginning of this now, and it's just going to escalate. China's going to become much more dependent on its own technology. They are going to have to, because they cannot get the components and the technology know-how that they've had from Silicon Valley for years. That's stopping now. And China is going to become much more self-reliant. I have a question for you, Rebecca. So when you talk about tech titans, traditionally you've been talking about Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu. These three titans were more or less confined to the Chinese market. Now you have a new titan, uh, ByteDance, right, with TikTok, yeah. which has really taken the U.S. by storm. Is this a an exception or is this a trend? I think it's a trend. We're going to start to see Chinese companies going global. TikTok is showing the way. They have a Chinese version and a, and a Western version. And that's showing the way for other companies coming out of China. Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, they really have not been that successful in taking their products and services outside of China. They have gone into Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is much more similar to China than the U.S. market is. So that was a logical step for them to go into Southeast Asia. But this whole Western world is a, is a, different, is a different animal. Could we see – this is a question for both of you, but Rebecca, I'll start with you. Do you think that we could see some resistance to that sort of expansion? You know, thinking about ByteDance specifically, it's wildly popular. Obviously, TikTok is in the U.S., but does that start to catch the attention in an almost Huawei-like way if there's an infiltration – and I'm sort of using that intentionally provocatively by a company like that into the U.S.? Well, you could see pushback. And I think uh, Huawei, if it's considered a threat, then other companies coming in from China will say, hey, you know, it's going to spill over to their image as well, even though it may not be justified. Right. But it's very been very interesting because in the beginning we saw the Chinese companies copying the American companies. Now we're seeing the reverse. So Facebook has copied Lasso. They, they've and they've copied TikTok, so you know it's it's amazing TikTok with Lasso. I mean, it's just amazing that you're starting to see the Silicon Valley companies copying the Chinese yeah. competitors, and this whole idea of social commerce that originated in China—that's another mm-hmm. uh, thing that's gone spilled over. The bike sharing started in China, that's spilled over. Uh, so I think we are going to see more and more of this global influence of Chinese tech companies. Yeah, look, I think there's also a wider perspective here. What people misunderstand about the trade war is that it's a derivative of much bigger geopolitical competition. And front and center of that is technology and the rise of technology, these mm-hmm. tech titans that uh, Rebecca is writing is writing about, and the way that China is really mastering the technologies of the future from artificial intelligence to robotics. Well, and I do exactly. wonder, as a result, though, like you were saying, you know, Jason, you were talking about, is could this be another, you know, Huawei case? But yeah. I do also wonder, as China wants to spread and go beyond its domestic market, does that maybe ultimately help us in U.S.-China trade negotiations? Because they want access 
to the global markets, the U.S. market as well. I'm curious what you think about that, Andy, because we've talked a lot about trade. Well, look, I, I see, uh, I think certainly in this country, the technology is seen very much as an arena for competition, not for collaboration. And that's the real tragedy. The most innovative part of the world today is not Silicon Valley, is not the Chinese tech hubs. It's a fusion. Mm-hmm. It's, this, it's this virtual digital kingdom that some people call Chinafornia. This virtual space is being torn asunder. Yeah. Uh, and this is where the great problems of humanity are being resolved, whether it's climate change, uh, whether it's the fight against diseases, whether it's access to capital. So many of these problems are being resolved by the brightest minds in the U.S. and China, and that is what is now at risk. All right. We're going to leave it there. Andy Brown, Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy, and Rebecca Fannin, the author of the new book, Tech Titans of China, incredibly timely. Both of us here in both of them, both of us as well here in our Bloomberg Interactive <laughs> Broker Studio. We're all here. So this story is among our most read on the Bloomberg today. We were just talking about it uh, a few minutes ago, about how recession is already gripping corners of the United States, which could spell trouble for President Trump. Sean Donnan is senior trade reporter at Bloomberg News. He is in our 991 studio in the nation's capital. Joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York, Joe Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. Really timely story. Sean, let's talk about this. We were talking about it actually with some of our eco team about what's happening around the country in terms of the economy. Tell us a little bit about uh, your story. Yeah, so I was listening in as you were having that conversation, and one of the interesting things there is uh, we were hearing exactly what we normally think in, in terms of looking at the economy, and that is that we look at the aggregate. We look at where the whole U.S. economy is going, and this, the reality is the U.S. is a whole kind of conglomerate. It's a big old-fashioned quilt of uh, individual economies, and some of those aren't doing so well. And one of them that isn't doing so well right now is uh, actually a pretty big one, and that's a $2 trillion segment of the economy that's the manufacturing sector, which effectively is in a recession right now. And why does that matter? That matters because uh, it's a political story as well. And we know from uh, looking back at what happened in 2015 and 16 that there was a manufacturing recession then that was provoked by a collapse in oil prices and the hit that the energy sector took, and that kind of flowed through the economy. And that that helped in a lot of swing states boost support for Donald Trump, who at the time was was uh, running on a message of bringing manufacturing back. So here we are, four years on, uh, 2019, going into an election year, and we've got a very similar scenario developing, where in a lot of swing t- swing states and in an important part of the economy, a uh, politically sensitive part of the economy, things aren't looking so good. And so Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, come on in here because this is a story, obviously, the magazine has been following very closely. How do you read a story like this, especially because it's going to level down? And I think that's the most important thing. I think, I think what Sean really does um, incredibly well in this story is this combination of data and narrative, which we kind of talked about in, on, on an email thread, patting him on the back earlier. Um, <laughs> and so here it is again verbally this time, Sean. The, there's one thing that really jumped out at me, which was this uh, little map of the country that accompanies the story. And it, it shows the country the, – sorry, the states that voted for 
Trump and then the change in manufacturing numbers. And, and admittedly, these are more up to date than the last four years. But you see Wisconsin on there, Michigan on there, Pennsylvania on there, uh, uh, Arizona's on there, um, Utah's on there, Florida's on there. Several of those are swing states. But, Sean, there's, you know, there, some of these states have been um, really bleeding these jobs, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, New York was another one. But other states have actually performed pretty well. So what, do you, what accounts for that juxtaposition? Yeah, so a lot of it is the energy boom. If you look at Texas, Texas has been absolutely going gangbusters right now. And you've had a big growth in manufacturing jobs. And that's the inverse of what we saw in 2015 and 16, where uh, the relatively high oil prices, also what we've seen in terms of the shale sector there, is is just really helping the local economy. And it's it's boom times in Texas. But if you go to Wisconsin, if you go to Broadhead, Wisconsin, where I went for the story, a little town of 3,000, there's a factory there run by this company called Kuhn. And Kuhn laid off 250 people for two weeks over the Labor Day holiday. And those 250 people are going to be are going to have another week off uh, that they don't want at, at the beginning of October. And that company is really going through some tough times right now. So, And you look at Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania has lost 8,000 uh, manufacturing jobs in the first seven, 000, first seven months of this year. That's important. That's a really important state for Donald Trump and his reelection calculus. He was there in August talking about the rebirth of manufacturing. So, you know, how this plays out over the next year, and I think that's the really important question here, is where are we going from here? And you talk to a lot of CEOs. I talked to the CEO of Cummins, the big diesel engine maker. The Cummins one, I think this is particularly interesting. And you see, and he's looking at, he sells 40% of his engines in China right now. And he's looking at China and he's seeing a slowdown in that economy and a slowdown in the trucking sector. If you sell diesel engines, a slowdown in the trucking sector is bad. But he's also seeing that slowdown in the trucking sector in the United States as well. And he says these two big markets for him are going to be in a worse place 12 months from now. And he's already getting ready for that. So, And what does that mean for a CEO in, in these shoes? If you're, if you're making diesel engines and have a ton of workers in your two biggest markets aren't well, looking like your two like, like yeah, well, that's absolutely so it means you're cutting costs it means you're putting investments on hold and that means you're starting to reduce production and that is uh, you know you're getting ready for a downturn that is not good for economic growth well, it's just so interesting. It's so opposite for how many years, how many decades, right? All of the uh, big multinational companies, U.S. multinationals, were just eyeing China, right, and the market. And so they worked so hard to set up relationships, set up plants, and so on and so forth. And now you got to go in the other direction. I, and I, th- I just think of the implications for, for jobs and that economic growth, right. like mm-hmm. Sean mentioned. Like, that will be – this is one of the early indicators that we should continue to monitor as we head into, you know, it's going to be an interesting year for sure. It's a great story. Sean Dunn is senior trade reporter for Bloomberg. Check that out in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. It's online and on the Bloomberg terminal already. Thank you to Sean, as well as Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. We'll see you tomorrow up at Columbia. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
It's time to get you toward the close, the drive to the close, we call it. Joining us, back with us, Sean Cruz, Manager of Trader Strategy at TD Ameritrade, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. Sean, great to have you back with Carol and myself. Thanks for having me on. All right, so I want to jump right to one of the big stories of the day, certainly capturing a lot of our attention here at Bloomberg and our Bloomberg customers, and that is Elliott Management and AT&T. So interesting, a little bit provocative there in the letter. We were just actually, as an aside, joking with our activist reporter, Scott DeVoe, last week about how it's like, oh, activists seem sort of like kinder and gentler these days. That wasn't so kind and gentle uh, today, uh, what they were talking about with AT&T. What you make of that? Yeah, I thought it was, it was interesting to see them come out, and they were very pointed in, in uh, their criticisms of, of how AT&T has been run lately. I do think if you're an investor or anybody taking a look at this company, I don't think it was too big of a surprise yeah. that they are coming out and saying, you need to do something with this direct TV business when you're watching that just bleed uh, subscribers uh, quarter after quarter and be in a weak spot. I think what they're, they're saying is, is appropriate. I think investors initially at least liked what they heard, and that was, we need to just refocus this business and really start ex- focusing on execution and firing all, all cylinders because they do like the core assets. And I think if you're looking at the space they're going into in the general direction they've been taking those core assets, there is a lot of opportunity there. So if they can they can refocus and streamline, there's a lot of value to be in, be uh, unlocked for, for their investors. Hey, Sean, what kind of trading flows are you guys seeing? Uh, what kind of investor interest in committing new money, backing out of more riskier plays, maybe moving into safer plays or vice versa. What are you guys seeing at we TD did. Ameritrade? Yeah. So today we put out the, the uh, TD Ameritrade IMX, which tracks uh, activity from our uh, retail client base. And we did see them start to go back into equities. We did have uh, have them step back a little bit, and we had some, some pretty big bouts of volatility. But this past month, we did see them move back into equities overall. And what was interesting was with the way they, they chose to go back into some of these names was they, they bought some of these names on weakness. And so we saw Microsoft had a little bit of a pullback. Uh, team Major clients went in and, and were scooping up some Microsoft. We saw them do something similar with Amazon as well. So they're, they're trying to find areas to put money back to work, and it looks like they're trying to, to buy some of these stocks that have gotten a little bit beaten up over the past couple months. So, <clears throat> Excuse me. So it seems like it was a long time ago. It was actually just Friday that we got the latest jobs report. Uh, as you've been able to sort of synthesize, digest that, especially as we get closer and closer to that next Fed meeting, how are you feeling about the employment levels, wages, generally, uh, that sort of employment part of the equation. So I wanted, looking at manufacturing, that came in, uh, you know, I wanted to do about 3,000 was the number um, for manufacturing, a little bit soft. And if you look back to the last time we had this a sort of soft number out of manufacturing, I look at the diffusion index, which kind of gives you an idea of the, the breadth uh, of hiring in a sector. And in May, we saw it pull back to 50. So we're kind of right there striding that line of, of being below 50, where it's considered a little bit more of a, a decelerating or contractionary reading. This time, it pulled back still into those lower 50s, and we saw another weak print. So what's concerning out of that number is if you look at new orders, you look at some of the other things you saw in the recent ISM manufacturing index, it doesn't look like there's going to be a recovery 
in manufacturing forthcoming as long as we have this overhang from uh, these trade disputes going on. So I don't expect a rebound uh, out, of, out of the manufacturing sector anytime soon. So it's really on the consumer, I think, to carry us. And if you look at the most recent GDP report, got about a little over 3% came from the consumer. So a lot of strength in, in our uh, GDP coming out of the consumer. If you look at the, the aggregate income measure that we pull out of the jobs report, still trucking along pretty well. We've got consumer credit today. Consumers are still going out there and borrowing. So it looks like at least for the near term, the consumer is going to continue to carry weight for the economy. But I think this retail sales number is going to be very important Friday because it's the last real look we get at the, the consumer before the Fed meets next week. But is the consumer going to continue to carry the economy by taking on you know more and more consumer credit? Like we got the number uh, just uh, about 50 minutes ago. Go, and it looks like consumers are aggressively taking on uh, more credit to continue their spending. Is that problematic in this low rate environment? Is everybody just getting a little too comfortable and that uh, down the road, this is going to be a problem? That, that is, is certainly something I would be keeping an eye on. So I'm going to look at the savings rate uh, moving mm-hmm. forward and see what's going on. And that is, are they going out there spending, levering up with some of the income that's still coming in pretty solid. If you look at that uh, that index of aggregate income, in January it, it peaked out at about 6% year-over-year growth, and it's it's been slowly backing off month after month. Got a little bit of a rebound, so you're still seeing solid growth in terms of aggregate income that's that's exceeding inflation, so it's, it's growth in real aggregate income. But you do want to see them maybe start to save some of that away, especially given what we've seen in a lot of the consumer sentiment reports, and that is in their expectations components. The the consumers are starting to get a little bit more concerned about how things are going to be moving forward. So I was actually a little surprised to see that that pop in uh, in uh, consumer credit today, that they really were going out there borrowing more and more. Typically, when you become concerned about the, the, the prospect for the economy or for future conditions, you want to start maybe saving to prepare for that. So I do think you want to maybe see a little bit of a pickup in savings as we continue to see, uh, at least for now, strong uh, wage growth. So, Sean Cruz from TD Ameritrade, what is your biggest single worry as we get over the, you know, get into the next month or so of this market? What could really mess this up in your estimation? I think the central banks uh, around the world not coming in uh, and being quite as accommodative as a, a lot of the investing public expects or wants them to be. So we've got that 25 basis point rate cut already priced in for September. We're already looking into October. And so now is the Fed going to cut for September, but then maybe they are, aren't as uh, dovish as we want them to sound in the, the the uh, press conferences that follow. Um, is the ECB not going to come out? They're almost expecting the ECB to come out, cut rates, and start doing some sort of quantitative easing. So there's a lot of, I would say, accommodative policy expected from central banks to provide a little bit of a bid to these markets. And that, to me, is the risk, is that they either don't come out and don't act the way the markets want them to, or they come out, they act the way the markets want them to, but then they don't get the, the language that makes them feel like they're going to continue to be accommodative moving forward. So that's the big risk. All right. We're going to run. Sean Cruz, thank you so much. Manager of Trader Strategy at TD Ameritrade on the phone from New Jersey. It's amazing, Jason, how many people basically are like, the Fed's the only game in town, right? I know. We used to talk about that fiscal policy, uh, lawmakers need to implement different types of policy to help uh, out the economy. We're not getting that. And 
everybody's relying on central bankers around the world. That's it. Yeah. It's amazing how much that has entered into it. And as you say, sort of this matrix of who's doing what and when and how is that going to influence everybody else's uh, decision making. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.